So Money, episode 330, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. So Money is brought to you today by Wealthfront, the most tax-efficient, low-cost, hassle-free way to invest. Visit Wealthfront.com. Hey, happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to So Money. This is... Ask Farnoosh, where I get to hear what's on your money mind, answer your financial questions. I'm recording this episode in Brooklyn, but next week, probably recording this episode in Los Angeles. I'm actually leaving for LA this weekend to interview my first subject for my new CNBC show that's airing in March. I'll also be attending while I'm in LA the TCA Press Tour. I've never heard about this, but apparently it's this big event, the Television Critics Association press event. I'll be there on behalf of the network and probably trying to not faint as these events tend to attract some well-known people and TV stars. You may see some of my favorite people from TV land. My top shows right now, Homeland, Downton Abbey, Veep with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and I just binged on Aziz Ansari's new Netflix series, Master of None. Anyone seen this? It has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, which last I checked, very few shows got a 100%. And, and honestly, I thought it was good. I thought it was smart. I thought it was okay. Would I give it a 100%? No. I thought it was thoughtful. It was definitely relatable because they actually shot it in Williamsburg and I lived in Williamsburg for a while and it was nice to see some of the familiarity of the places they were going and the conversations they were having in their their 30-something lives. But did it make me laugh out loud? No. It was kind of rusty at at some points. I don't think the acting was... Some people were amazing in, in the show as far as acting. Others were, maybe they could take a few acting lessons. I don't know. I, I know that's harsh. That's harsh because I could never do a show like that. But just my honest opinion. But I will say that it actually had me caring about the characters and feeling invested in their happiness, which few shows do that for me anymore. I don't know about you. All right, enough about television. Let's go back to podcasts and let's invest in you and and answer your burning questions. We have a question from Mike. He says, in terms of best ways to teach people sound financial management and helping obtain financial freedom, what tool do you think is the most effective? Social media? Sound financial management and helping obtain financial freedom. That's a those are big tall tasks. And I don't think there is one tool. And I don't actually think social media, as in Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, Periscope, is highly effective, partly because I don't think people turn to social media for financial advice as as much as they may turn to things like books and articles, podcasts, tools, and let's not forget, real people. I mean, that's my perspective. I think social media has its purpose. I've done numerous Twitter chats and Facebook chats and Periscope events to help build awareness around money and strike up engagement over a particular money topic, but it's not the end all. I would say it's maybe a way to tease a topic, to gauge interest, but then move the conversation over somewhere where you can be intimate like a podcast. 
totally shameless, but I think this podcast has been a game changer, don't you think? I mean, for me, at least, it's been a way to open my world up to financial possibilities. I've learned more about money and people's thoughts and experiences around money in the last year that doing this show than any, I will say this, this is a big statement, but I will say more than any other project or work I've put out. I've written books, I've done TV shows. I think the 30 to 40 minutes we have every day on this show allows for a lot of reflection. And I think the lesson is that the most powerful and effective vehicle might be conversation, having these open dialogues and discussions around money, which is a very taboo topic still. I think that'll open the floodgates. That'll get people excited about money and want to obtain financial freedom. And and in some cases, face our financial demons or fears as they may exist. So I vote for podcasts is my short answer to your question, Mike. Anna writes in and says, I love your podcast. Well, thanks, Anna. She says she listens every night while making dinner. Well, that's so money because sometimes I wish I was making dinner and said I'm ordering dinner and that's not so money. But Anna, you've you've inspired me. She says, your interview with Betty Lou inspired my question as she mentioned that she tries to take emotions out of her financial decisions. Anna says, my brother and I recently inherited my dad's house and we are not in agreement on whether to keep or sell it. My brother lives there and doesn't want to sell. I don't own a home and I would rather sell. But rather than completely overriding my brother's wishes, I requested that he put together a business plan for me if he wants to keep the house. I've yet to receive anything from him. And my question is, should I keep the house and use it as an investment property, even though it's a shared ownership, or should I sell it and reduce my liability on a 70-year-old house. Wow, 70 years old, Anna. I'm sure this is not a house that's in stellar condition. Maybe it's going to need a new roof soon. It might uh, just need a lot of fixing up, which could factor into the costs down the road. Honestly, I can't, I cannot answer this question for you. I am not legally tied to this house. You and your brother are. And this has to be a joint decision. Unfortunately, your brother sounds pretty complacent and unmotivated to make any moves right now. And the least of which to create a business plan. I mean, I think that was a, a very astute suggestion on your end, but it was not well received, obviously. One of the pitfalls of leaving property to several people, one, more than one, I think, is that it makes it harder for everyone to come into agreement on what should happen with the property. Hopefully, he's not taking advantage of the situation and being a freeloader and hoping that you're going to pick up the tab. Question for you, questions. Um, Is there still a mortgage? You call this inheritance a liability, so I'm guessing probably there is still a loan attached to it. And if that is the case, and it's not an easy payment to make that mortgage, then you and your brother may come to the conclusion that it's better off selling. Maybe you have to show him the math. Has he seen the math? What this could mean? And also factor in the potential cost of maintenance as this is a 70-year-old home. And the other thing I want to ask is, have you consulted with a real estate attorney? Because this person, depending also on the state that you live in, could help you navigate your rights. And ultimately, though, I think this is going to have to be a joint effort. Your brother is a legal owner, legal stakeholder in this property. You can't just make decisions without him being involved. And so try to reconvince him of the perhaps the benefits that you see 
from selling. And, and maybe all he needs to learn is that there will be cold, hard cash in his future. And perhaps there are some emotional attachments to this house that, you know, has to be assumed as well. So go back, talk to your brother, have an honest conversation, lay all your cards out, and and maybe it would help to speak to an attorney who can be a sort of objective voice of reason. Undoubtedly, this is an emotional time for him, which may not be the perfect time to make financial decisions. So maybe having some time go by is a good idea too. All right. Next question is Connie. She says, hey, Farnoosh, I just want to say that your podcast has really changed my life. Well, okay. I'm just going to do a mic drop now because that's the best thing you could probably say to me, that it's changed your life. And I assume for the better, I will read on. She says, I'm 32 and I've become an avid listener since your first episode with Tony Robbins. This year, I've increased my salary by $15,000 by negotiating when I got a new job. And I credit that partially to advice from your podcast interviews. High five. She says, I have a large student loan for my undergraduate degree. I've decided not to pursue graduate school because of this debt. And until this year, I've been paying minimum payments on this student loan. I just hit the 10-year mark and realized I'm barely making a dent. Now I'm making double payments every month. In addition to decreasing the principal of my loan, will making double payments improve my credit score? This is a really good question, I think, because it is not always clear, right, what a credit score factors in. And I will say that your credit score is largely dependent on payment activity related to revolving credit such as credit cards, student loans, mortgages, those are installment loans. Your student loans are factored in, but not as heavily. And I think all things equal, reducing your student loans should have a positive impact on your score because it is effectively lowering your debt to credit ratio, but it's not as influential as say paying off your credit card debt. So that's the short answer, but don't let that dissuade you from paying down your student loans. I think I'm with you. If you've made it 10 years and you're you're not really noticing a dent and you're making more money now and this is weighing on your conscience and it's weighing on your ability to feel financially independent, then do that. Pay double. And the, and the key is that you're paying that extra payment towards the principal and not just an extra payment, okay? So make sure that, that is what you're doing, that you're paying what's due every month, which is in a combination of principal and interest, but that that extra payment goes down exclusively towards principal. That will definitely accelerate your payoff. Destiny writes, hi, Farnoosh, I just reading your book, Psych Yourself Rich. Thank you for writing that. Well, thank you for reading it. She says, my question was about how to keep your papers and your tax files. I was under the impression that you had to keep all paperwork for at least seven years, but you had said three. Was it three for the tax files or three for the other paperwork or both? Or is it seven for the rest of the non-tax files? Laughing out loud, LOL. Because if it's only three years, I'm going to have a heyday cleaning out my house. Thank you kindly. Well, speaking of cleaning out my house, just a little aside here, I just started reading The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. I know I'm very late to this. People have been telling me about this book for like the last six months, the last year, and I finally asked for it for Christmas, and I'm on chapter two. And I have to say, I'm pretty neat, and I don't feel as though I'm learning anything yet, nothing really profound that's like altering my life, but I think that there's more to come. And if anything... I'm becoming reinvigorated, re-inspired to once and for all do a 
a super tidying up of my home because after the baby, there was just a lot of compilation and a lot of adding instead of just subtracting. Anyway, to your question about taxes, tax paperwork, how long should you keep everything? The IRS suggests that you keep your tax returns, returns, your statements for three years. Tax paperwork that supports the return, receipts, pay stubs, et cetera, you would be better off keeping that for up to seven years in the event especially that you get audited. And the reason is, is if you get audited for, and this is key, especially for failure to report all your income, the IRS may request supporting documents as far back as seven years. So, And this is of particular importance, heightened importance for people who own a business or have freelance income because in those cases you're more likely to forget to report that one small paycheck you got back in June. Sometimes the IRS puts business owners and freelancers under the microscope more than people who work, you know, for a standard nine to five. So just something to think about. I believe that's what the book said too, although I've been known to make mistakes. So if that is, if there's confusion in the book, which was written five years ago, actually more than that, it was published five years ago, probably written seven years ago, then know this, three years for IRS returns, seven years for supporting documents. Time now to shed some light and say thank you to one of our sponsors on the show today, Wix.com. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 70 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer-made customizable templates to choose from, the drag and drop editor, and even video backgrounds. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. The site empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy, too busy, too busy worrying about your budget, too busy scheduling appointments, too busy to build a website website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your own website today. Amanda writes in, she says, should I ask about peer equity during a raise conversation? I'm going to a raise discussion this month and I've taken on many additional responsibilities this year. I'm asking for a 15% raise. If it is a no, I'd feel good if I knew my pay was comparable to my peers. I'm thinking of two male coworkers in particular who are adding similar value and at similar places in their career. The way I've been thinking about phrasing it is asking my manager to just be aware, since I know he can't tell me their pay, ask him to take five minutes and ensure that he feels my pay is equitable when compared with these partners. If you can answer that as a yes, as my company is going through some hard times, then I'm okay. But I want him to know that, but I want him to make sure he's thought about it. Do I bring this up or just focus all on me? This is pretty bold. I think that bringing up your peers' compensation in a conversation about your raise is not the best strategy. I do think it's better to focus on your value to the company based on your input and accomplishments. There's no one like you. So don't bother, you know, comparing yourself to your coworkers. I mean, it's hard not to, right? I I get what you're saying completely. And if as a woman, if I had the sense that my male colleagues who were putting in as much work as I was were compensated more, I'd be pissed. 
But to ask your boss to reference other people's pay in the meeting, I'm not really sure that's appropriate. And honestly, what does comparable mean? Really? Is a 15% difference comparable? Is a 5% difference comparable? I think what you really want to ask is, do I make the same amount of money? Don't beat around the bush. But even then, I don't think I'm going to recommend it because at the end of the day, he could just turn around and say, well, that's confidential and I really don't feel comfortable. And then things get awkward. And I worry really, I really most that that kind of questioning can, can work against you. It's not a terrible question and it's completely in your right to be paid equitably, but to ask you know, is my pay comparable to other people's pay? I feel like that's not something that a manager would be prepared to answer and just giving him five minutes, I think could really uh, turn him off. So here's what I would say though, beyond focusing on your good work, focus also on how a raise or promotion will benefit the team. And go back and listen to my podcast with Leah Goldman, co-executive editor at Marie Claire, who shared some really valuable advice around women in compensation. And actually, you asking for 15%, she would say ask for 20%. Every woman should ask for 20% more than what they're making. And then to quote Sheryl Sandberg from Lean In, uh, she said, you should go into your negotiation with a very clear sense of what you want. However, when you do talk, it shouldn't be all about what you want and why you think you deserve it. You've got to turn it around and explain to the person you're trying to persuade why your negotiating is legitimate in their eyes and demonstrate that you're taking on their perspective and thinking about your relationship with them. Cheryl found that when women explained why what they were asking for is legitimate and signaled concern for organizational relationships, that they both increased people's inclination to give them what they're asking for and improve the social impression that they made. So in layman's terms, everyone wins when you ask for a raise and mention the benefit of you making more and your greater responsibilities as a benefit to the team because you'll be able to focus more on your work, you'll be able to be happier at work, that then everyone wins and you'll actually be looked upon more favorably, you're more likely to get the raise, and that more people, she says, are more inclined to work with you if they negotiate than if you had just negotiated straight out like some guys do. The truth is there are some gender biases when it comes to effectiveness in asking for a raise. Women, studies show, should shape the ask differently, should strategize differently than men. Good luck. And I'm just happy that you're thinking about yourself and getting more money and speaking up for yourself. But don't focus on your coworkers. Focus on you and think about how your elevation in the company will benefit the group and the company. Last question here from Matthew. He says, my mom needs a car but can't afford it. So I've decided to purchase one for her, about $15,000. I have about $83,000 in student loans and I'll be putting 20% down on a mortgage in the next one to three years. My concern is my net worth in the eyes of mortgage lenders. Is this a consideration they make? And if so, should I keep the car for my mom titled in my name so that I have a larger net worth? Or should I just register the car in my mom's name and lose that 15000 in net worth. All right, Matthew, so when applying for a mortgage, sure, they do ask for assets and liabilities, and that ultimately will lead them to a net worth for you. But the most important thing when you're applying for a mortgage, there's a few that I think supersede your net worth. One is your income, and the other is your credit score, which reflects your payment history and how good you are with borrowing money. Also, having skin in the game in the form of a substantial down payment, 20% is very good. 
that can work in your favor as well. Lenders, you know, they want to be sure at the end of the day that you have the ability and capacity to pay the mortgage. They consider net worth too, but having a net worth that is plus or minus $15,000, I don't think is going to really make or break your chances of getting a mortgage. What's going to be more impactful is your credit score. And in some cases, if you can just prove that you have the monthly capability of paying that mortgage down and that your job is secure, sometimes they'll ask for a letter from your employer that says your job is as far as they can tell, secure and that you've been a good employee. They might want uh, a letter from your accountant to say that you're, if you're a business owner, that your business is in good standing. These are the sort of variables I think that will be heavily examined in an underwriting situation for a mortgage. And honestly, 15000 for a used car, you could probably go lower and still get a really good car. Go to edmunds.com. They've got a, a lot of listings. And I did actually a little bit of research for you and, and just st- to kind of scrape the surface and found that you can get a lot of great, relatively new vehicles, you know, from talking 2012 till now, used in the ten dollars to $12,000 ballpark. So you may not have to spend the whole fifteen k. All right. And what a great son you are. Thanks for helping out your mom. And thanks for listening, everyone, for all your questions to Matthew, Amanda, Destiny, Connie, Anna, and Mike. I really appreciate your questions, your thoughtful questions. I appreciate you for tuning in every day, every week. This show could not be anywhere without you. Wish me good luck as I travel across the country to get this show on the road. I will be tweeting and sending out pictures and maybe even some periscopes along the way. So stay connected. Follow me on Twitter at Farnoosh and continue to send me your questions. Very simple. Go to somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh. And that question will go directly into my inbox and... Who knows? Maybe you and I will be uh, having a one-sided conversation (laughs) in an upcoming Q&A. Thanks so much again. Hope your weekend is so money. Money.